Welcome to this third episode of Europe Chess with Jim Clough. Jim is TEPSA's Secretary General and former Director General at the General Secretariat of the Council of the European Union. Today we will analyze how the European Union has responded to various crises that hit the continent over the past 13 years with a particular focus on COVID-19. What does this experience show us in terms of the Union's strengths and weaknesses? Jean Monnet famously said that Europe will be forged in crisis. But how well has the European Union managed COVID-19? Has it gained trust for a revamped and deepened Union? Or has the potential European success story rather turned into distrust of the European Union? Hello, Jim. Hello, Miriam. Until January, you were helping to prepare European Council meetings. But before we move to COVID-19, maybe a couple of words about other crises that EU has had to confront since 2008. We all remember the global financial crisis, the migration crisis, the Brexit. Are there any general lessons to be drawn from these experiences? EU decision-making um, seems uh, rather complex in comparison with other large economic powers. Is it the case that the EU is well set up for finding common ground on longer-term challenges, but it has weaknesses in moments of crisis where decisive action is needed within days? Miriam, you, you are very right. Um, the, the crisis we've gone through have revealed something which we knew, that because of its nature uh, as a union of states and uh, peoples, the EU is better geared towards doing long-term work, structural work, regulatory and legislative work, rather than manage crises. Uh, when a crisis hits, you normally have a moment of panic, dithering, questioning. The reason for this is that there are many layers of decision-making. There's not one president of the European Union. There are many presidents. And another reason, of course, is that uh, sometimes, as we've seen in the pandemic crisis, health matters are not a direct EU competence. So the Union cannot take quick and decisive action on its own. But Monet, Monet was right. Uh, crises do forge Europe. Uh, the pattern we normally see is that when a crisis hits, the heads of state and government try to get together as quickly as possible. And they take urgent measures, stopgap measures. They show that they care about this crisis. They will handle it. Then very quickly what they try to do is normally in a written form, either conclusions or a declaration, they set out the framework for handling the crisis. Uh, who should do what? And they give a sense of direction. At the same time, they do tasking. They ask institutions, or sometimes the member states, to take action to adopt a certain number uh, of measures. This gives, as I said, a sense of meaning to the whole uh, episode, to the whole handling of the crisis. And it also lends legitimacy because of the uh, legitimate nature of the heads of state and governments. Mm -hmm. Now, the various crises you mentioned have all revealed some weaknesses in our policies and in our structures. If you take the subprime crisis, it morphed into a sovereign debt crisis because there were questions asked about EMU. Wasn't there too much of a divergence or discrepancy between the monetary pillar, which is very centralized, and the economic pillar, which is decentralized? 
or aren't there too many constraints on how the European Central Bank can go about its business? Isn't there too strict an interpretation of the no bailout clause? Uh, if you take the migration crisis, it revealed that we had at some stage in 2015 trouble policing our own external borders. The crisis also revealed that the Dublin system of how to do, how to deal with asylum seekers was in a way a fair weather policy which was suited to a situation where you didn't have enormous amounts of people coming into the European Union. Brexit conjured up the nightmare of a union dissolving itself in a kind of, uh, uh, in a kind of domino effect. Uh, and of course we are going to talk a lot about uh, the COVID crisis. Um, it has to be said that with its back against the wall, the union pressed by events has actually done a lot over the last 12 years. For instance, in economic coordination, fiscal coordination has been beefed up. The European Central Bank has found ways of uh, doing a bit more than it could do initially. Uh, we have created a European stability mechanism to help countries in trouble. As far as migration is concerned, the response is, uh, was partially quite strong in terms of policing our external borders, of working more together with countries of origins and transit. It was a bit less convincing in reforming our migration and asylum policy. We're still uh, working at that. On the external borders, we beefed up the role of Frontex, which is our agency, quite massively. And as far as Brexit is concerned, I would simply say that uh, there was a very strong show of unity by the 27 in their dealings uh, with the UK. So I would say that today, the EU is stronger and better equipped to deal with crises. Uh, this is actually recognized in the latest Eurobarometers, where you see more support than before for the European Union. And if I take the single currency, whose demise had been very often announced very prematurely by uh, many journalists, academics, and uh, other observers. Uh, the approval rate right now is at 79%, which is just absolutely massive. Now, having said all of this, uh, the union reacted, and it reacted quite well, but in a very haphazard way. Uh, I am reminded of the title of the French edition of Luc van Midler's latest book, which is called Une Europe qui improvise. Europe had to improvise. I very much hope that we are now getting to a stage where we draw the lessons and where we build a stronger and more resilient EU in a more systematic fashion. Let us move to the pandemic. We are now speaking in May 2021. Since last year, all EU countries have gone through very hard and damaging waves of the pandemic. At the same time, a lot of action has been taken at the EU level. How would you evaluate EU's handling of the COVID-19 crisis? Would you say that EU has risen to the challenge? As always, uh, the question is whether the glass is half, half full or half empty. In my view, it is half full. I think on the whole, the Union has managed well. It made, of course, mistakes like anybody would do, but on the whole, uh, I think they've managed. The handling followed very much the pattern I've just described with the preeminent role of the European Council. But the reaction, for instance, was faster and more resolute than at the time of the subprime crisis, which shows that the Union does learn 
from its past uh, mistakes. In this particular case, uh, President Michel very quickly convened two video conferences, so virtual meetings between the heads of state and government in March, where they set out the first reaction to the urgent things which had to be done. Then already on the 26th of March, they again had a virtual meeting, but they decided to adopt a written joint statement. Why? Because they wanted to set out the framework for handling the crisis. And then they tasked, they tasked uh, President Michel and uh, President von der Leyen to come up with a roadmap. Uh, and above all, they tasked the Eurogroup uh, to think about how to handle the socio-economic effects of the uh, crisis. Uh, then, a few weeks later, they came back again. They endorsed what the European, what the Eurogroup had agreed upon, the three safety nets uh, to help workers and uh, sovereigns and enterprises to the tune of 540 billion euros. And it tasked the Commission to sort out the one question where the Eurogroup had not managed to agree, which was a recovery package. So they asked the Commission to work on an ambitious recovery package closely linked to the 2021-27 multi-annual framework, which had to be negotiated at the same time. The whole package was adopted at a memorable session in July last year, which lasted five days and four nights. Uh, and then in summer, the Commission managed to convince the member states to go for a joint procurement policy in vaccines. In a nutshell, I would say, this was overall quite an impressive performance in very difficult circumstances. Let's go through the key actions that you have just mentioned and start from the urgent measures taken in spring 2020. Were they adequate? On the whole, I would say yes. Let's go through some of the measures. If I look at the masks, it was a bit surprising that such a developed region of the world like the EU seemed to have trouble getting enough masks. But of course, if you were a health minister in 2019, would you have invested, rather than invest in research or how to treat patients, into buying millions of masks, which at the time were just used for medical purposes. But when the crisis hit, very quickly our industry delivered, and there's no problem of masks anymore, and there will not be in the foreseeable future. Uh, look at vaccine research, which is of course a global effort, a very impressive act. It's the first time in history that a new vaccine was created in less than a year and put on the market almost immediately afterwards. This is an extraordinary feat of the scientific community worldwide, but with very strong involvement, both in financing terms and in terms of science and research by the EU, together with the United States and, and many other actors. Take another example. Uh, the European Union very quickly established green lines, which allowed goods to flow freely all through the pandemic. This is important, of course, because you want to keep goods in the market and in the supermarkets, for instance. Now, we are so used to have supermarkets overflowing with goods that we completely forget that there's an enormous amount of work behind it. And in this particular case, if we hadn't done it when the borders were being closed to some extent, at least for persons, you had to work very hard to make this, and it worked very well. 
And then there's something which many people don't know. It's that in spring last year, the EU, member states plus the institutions jointly, worked very hard to repatriate within a few weeks half a million Europeans who had been stranded uh, abroad. There is one area where the response was less impressive, quite frankly. This is the coordination of the health measures. Now, there are three reasons for this. First of all, this was a crisis, was such a crisis which no one had ever seen before worldwide, globally hitting the whole world at the same time. Secondly, it of course hit at the time countries differently, and not only countries, but even within countries, you had very different uh, situations, which means that a one-size-fits-all policy just wouldn't do. And the third reason is the one I mentioned before, as far as health measures are concerned, the EU does not have a direct competence. So it was normal that member countries had to act quickly and they didn't act exactly in the same way and we had to work very hard on coordination. Lots of progress has been done in coordination and uh, in the second half, for instance, the, of the year, the Union agreed on guidelines for how to treat people coming into the EU from outside how people could cross the borders within the EU. Uh, we, the countries are working together to lifting the restrictions and also there's now a lot of work and talk about a certificate which would prove that you have been either vaccinated or you have had a recent test uh, or you, are, you have immunity. So uh, all of this, I think, uh, was a reaction under very difficult circumstances. But again, overall, I'm positive. Let me now turn to the July 2020 European Council meeting, which you helped to prepare. How important is the EU's recovery plan? It seems like a lot of money, but on the other hand, we are speaking about 750 billion euros for the entire EU27, and mostly for investment projects that will take years to be realized. Is this sufficient in terms of economic stabilization, or was the main purpose of the recovery plan to give a symbolic signal that EU is tackling this unprecedented crisis together? Miriam, this is definitely not a symbolic gesture. Uh, we are talking about the MFF, which is over seven years, 1.07 billion, and we added to this, for the first three years only, we added uh, recovery money amounting to 750 billion euros, which means that in the first years of the new economic cycle, uh, the funds which are provided by the EU are almost double of what they would have been without this decision. Now, there is of course a point I want to make in this context, that uh, it is true that the EU budget overall only amounts to 1% of GDP, which shows, by the way, that the people who create the myth about the EU costing taxpayers an arm and a leg is completely wrong. The EU is not a state, and the EU's uh, budget is complementary to the national budgets. It makes no sense to constantly compare the EU to the United States, for instance, in a negative way. You have to compare what's comparable. Uh, if you want to have a decent comparison, you have to look at what the EU as such does, the 1.8 trillion, but you have to also, plus the 540 billion uh, for the safety net, you have to look what happens in the member states. Many more billions, hundreds of billions. And you also uh, have to see 
the programs of the European Central Bank, which injected massive amounts of money. A final remark. There is, of course, one aspect which is symbolic in a way, but very important for the future. And that is, it's the first time in the European history that we go out and borrow on the financial markets and transfer at least, well, 60% of that money, we transfer it directly to the member states. And there is another important aspect for the future. In order to reimburse those funds, we will sooner or later have to create new EU-owned resources, which will give another boost to integration, in my view. Yes, joint borrowing to support the recovery is an important novelty, which strengthens the European integration. But what would make the next generation EU programme successful? Will the funding be dispersed sufficiently on time for it to make a difference, a meaningful difference, when needed? And is the Commission not interfering too much with national recovery plans? Miriam, you raise two distinct questions here. The first one is about the actual disbursement of the funds. Uh, we are still waiting for the last national ratifications of the own resources decision, which are necessary for the Commission to go and borrow the funds, which will then be dispersed. Now, this is now becoming urgent. Almost all the member countries have ratified, but there are still six or seven that haven't. They have to do it urgently because, of course, we want to get the money out as soon as possible. Your second question is how the money is being spent. Is it well spent or not so well spent? Now, here, there is, of course, uh, uh, an obvious point that the EU, in some way or other, has to control things. And the Commission, of course, has an important mm -hmm. role in this. But at the same time, of course, we have to be careful that the EU or Brussels, like some people say, does not interfere too much and micromanage things. For instance, uh, it's not for the Commission to decide which kind of bridge should be built in some village in southern Italy. That is for the local and for the national administrations. Uh, we have a principle which is very important in our system. It's the principle of subsidiarity. You have to do things where the closer, you are closest to the citizen at the level which is the most appropriate to deal with. So you have to strike a fine balance here. And there was a lot of debate about this balance uh, in July under the term of governance. That was what the term governance meant. And there you had the Commission which had proposed that in order to speed things up, that the Commission would be allowed to endorse the national programs on its own. A majority in the Council said, no, 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 we want to have a look at it. And by qualified majority, which was finally the deal which was adopted, even there was one delegation, the Dutch, who wanted to do this by unanimity, which of course was, frankly, a bit over the top. So this is something which, it's one of the normal questions or tangents we have in our system. Now, what is interesting is that I recently heard some uh, criticisms, particularly from uh, northern countries, that the system was too bureaucratic. This is, of course, interesting because it was the net payers who were insisting on more controls and making it more difficult to uh, spend the money. So this is slightly ironic, but I think we'll find the right balance in the end. EU leaders have taken an important decision to procure vaccines together. How did the EU's vaccine strategy come about? The initial reaction was, of course, that the member countries were starting to look into 
launching national procurement systems because it is clearly a national competence. Then you had four countries, uh, Germany, France, Italy, and I believe Netherlands, who decided to do this jointly, to have a stronger negotiating uh, power vis-a-vis -vis the pharmaceuticals who were developing the uh, vaccines. The Commission then thought that this should apply to the whole Union. It made sense for the 27. And the Commission managed uh, to convince the member countries to go down that route. And this was quite revolutionary in a way. And people must know that the uh, negotiating team brought together experts, of course, from the Commission, but there were also some national experts who were in it. So overall, uh, I think this was a, a, a new and very welcome development. But many people have criticized the speed of vaccine deliveries. The UK and the US have decided to pay higher prices to pharmaceutical companies, but they got their vaccines faster. By contrast, the European Commission seems to have focused on bargaining better prices and keeping liability with producers. Wasn't this approach a bit too cautious and defensive? Miriam, I find it a bit odd that the Commission should be criticised for trying to negotiate a good price. After all, uh, we're talking about taxpayers' money. But it is not as though the Commission pushed the price down so much uh, to uh, make it impossible for uh, others to deliver. I mean, when AstraZeneca, we have to talk about AstraZeneca here, when they signed the contract, they took commitments to deliver a certain amount of doses for a certain price, and they didn't do it. The Commission couldn't know that a company like AstraZeneca would, AstraZeneca would simply not live up to their commitments by a far stretch. And it even looks as though this company, to some extent, maybe knew before that they wouldn't do so. Because very interestingly, when uh, after the contract was signed, and by the way, the contract between the EU and AstraZeneca was signed a day before the UK government signed a contract, um, uh, they couldn't, they didn't ask for the authorization for the product by the European Medicines Agency. That is rather strange. Was that because they wanted to gain time in order not to deliver? We also found out that there was an uh, AstraZeneca producing uh, line in the Netherlands, which almost exclusively exported the doses to the UK. At the same time, there were lines of production in the UK. There's not one dose which left the UK to come to the EU, for instance. But was this the only problem that slowed down the vaccination process? There is a distinction here to be made of getting the doses to the people uh, and then to administer them. Getting the doses was, of course, a responsibility of the Commission once it had launched this joint procurement system. Uh, here, as I said, the mishap with AstraZeneca uh, caused frictions and led to criticism. But for me, the main culprit here is very clearly uh, the company. I am personally convinced that a free-for-all, where all the member countries would have competed to get the vaccines, would have been far worse, and particularly for the smaller number of countries, whose bargaining power would have been uh, very little indeed. Now, the second question is how to administer the doses. And that's, of course, clearly for the member countries to do. Some 
as you could have expected, were better than others. Uh, now, I would say that the vaccines arrive in sufficient numbers. The situation is evolving quite rapidly, uh, and we are catching up. Uh, uh, I personally was very impressed with the way this was done in Brussels. I received a convocation quite quickly and had my two doses, because I'm over 65, of course. Uh, overall, I think now the EU is on target uh, to have vaccinated by the start of the summer 70% of its populations. The daily vaccination rates in the EU are now higher than in the US and the UK, but of course that is partially due to the fact that we have some catching up to do. As you said, EU has been open in exporting vaccines that were produced in Europe, but also in donating them to poorer countries. It has been much more generous than the UK or the US. Does the European Union get sufficient credit for it? And how about the Chinese and Russian vaccine diplomacy to show presence and influence in Europe? And should the EU not have done more for its own immediate neighbourhood? Miriam, this is again one of those areas where our communication seems to let us down. In spite of the facts on the ground, speaking for themselves and actually speaking for the EU. As I said before, while the EU exported tens of millions of doses to the UK, none have gone the other way, although there are, of course, production sites in the UK. Israel launched a very aggressive and very successful, I must say, uh, campaign for vaccination. But by far, most of the doses actually came from European production sites. The U United States in June introduced a ban on exports of vaccines produced in the United States on the basis of a national security clause. So the United States produced about 320 million doses, but none of them were exported uh, abroad. On top of this, it put curbs on the export of the raw materials necessitated to produce the vaccines. Uh, that is why uh, I'm a bit misled by President Biden's call to abolish the patents. I think certainly in the short term, it makes more sense to open up the trade and to allow for export exports from the very, uh, from the countries which produce most, which are the United States and the EU, but a few others as well. Let me say a word about the neighboring countries and more generally countries in need. This is of course really important because if we do not manage to spread vaccination across the globe, we're going to be in some trouble. That is why there is an initiative under the UN, which is called COVAX which is meant to get the vaccines to the countries concerned, is very important. The biggest contributors by far here is the EU, which has committed already 2.5 billion, and the United States, who have promised 3.2 billion over the next two years. The question now is to use that money to get the doses to the countries as quickly as possible. Now, let me say a word about China and Russia. Of course, they engaged in vaccine diplomacy, including in our neighborhood. We should be aware of this, and we should factor it in in our reactions and in our policies. Concerning the vaccines, I personally would be reluctant to take a vaccine uh, which would not have been approved by the European Medical Agency. 
Now, the Chinese and the Russian producers can, of course, go to the EU to get their products authorized in the EU. There's nothing which prevents them from doing it, but it hasn't happened. The question is why? Is it because they do not want to give all the data they have at their disposal? I don't know, but I've seen that it hasn't happened. I also see that the vaccination efforts within Russia, for instance, does not seem to be terribly impressive. Uh, are we back in the Soviet model where, uh, at the time, uh, there were some products which were only for export or for foreigners living in the Soviet Union, not for their own citizens? Concerning China, uh, I just have one major point I'd like to make, and this is this country must really help work with the scientific community to find out where uh, the virus comes from. We need an international transparent cooperation on that. That would be a very big contribution to fighting this virus and maybe future viruses. What main lessons should the EU draw from the COVID-19 experience when it comes to its ability to deal with urgent crises? The situation uh, uh, the EU and the world faced was quite unusual. And therefore, as I said, a degree of improvisation and learning by doing was inevitable, be it in the EU or outside of the EU. What matters now, as you say, is we have to draw the right lessons from what has happened in terms of infrastructure, stocks, value chain, dependence on certain countries, research, procurement, and coordination. For many Europeans, if you look at the Eurobarometers, this is now a key, if not the key, priority. Now, uh, we have to look at that and see what we can do. If, in this context, we need one or the other treaty change, let us do it. For instance, if we want to give some more powers to the EU in terms of health matters, let's do it. I do not personally believe we need an overall treaty change for that. Uh, concerning the recovery plan, this is really very important, to get it now done quickly and well. Failure here is not an option, because that would backfire very badly against the European Union. And more in general, as I've mentioned before, I very much plead for a more proactive reflection on strengthening our strategic autonomy, our resilience, our uh, capacity to act in the interest of our citizens. Uh, that, for me, is the key challenge over the coming years, and I think we can come back to that in our next Europe chat, where we are going to talk about strategic autonomy. Thank you very much, Jim, for all this insight. Thank you. And thank you all for watching this third episode of Europe Chat. If you liked it, if it intrigued you, or even if it annoyed you, please do like, comment, subscribe, and don't be shy to send in your questions for Jim to answer in the next episode. You can send in your questions via Twitter using the hashtag EuropeChat. See you next time. This podcast is co-funded by the Europe for Citizens program of the European Union. The European Commission support for the production of this podcast does not constitute an endorsement of the contents which reflects the views only of the author and the Commission cannot be held responsible for any use which may be made of the information.